Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the giver of life, and we thank you that you create for us to be in community with you. And we thank you that we know all this because of your holy word, which you have revealed to us. And we know that your word can only be understood properly by the power of your spirit, and so we pray for your spirit's work in us. Whether it is we are seeking for the truth or listening to Christianity for the first time, or whether it is where we believe and are seeking to know and grow in our knowledge of you and your word, we pray for your spirit to be at work in helping us to understand why it is that we ought to believe in the church. In believing, we pray that you help us to see the glorious truth that the church is, a glorious truth that should shape the way that we live in this world and the way that we treat each other as the body of Christ. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you think of uh, theology as a team, right, and there's always a starting team, then the things that we've covered in the last sort of eight weeks are things that make it onto the starting team, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they are like the superstars, right, of the theology team. And you get to this week, and this part of the Apostles' Creed, and you read about, your, about the belief, right, the, 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 the statement that I believe in the church, and you may start to think, mm, maybe the church should be on the reserves bench, right? Maybe they should uh, maybe even be just a water boy, right? That doesn't really get onto the field. Because when we think about the church, we don't usually have a very high view of the church, right? Instead, today, it would be fair to say that many people have a low view of the church, whether there's people who are outside the church or not Christians, or whether there's people who are in the church. And so what is it that makes it a, a fundamental belief of Christianity that we have to declare that we believe in the church? Now, it all depends on our answer to the question, what is the church, doesn't it? Now, we think of the church, as many of us do, as a building. So, uh, building. Then, uh, we have a nice building. This is a view of our church from the outside. Oh, you may see the first thing of a church as a building. And you think, okay, that's not too impressive. It's just a building. Maybe some of us, when we think of church, we think of an organization, right? Like all the big denominations of Christianity. You know, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Uniting Church, uh, and we think, okay, well, that's not that impressive either. Or maybe we're thinking of the local church, right? Like us, right? SLE Church. This is a view of some of us outside milling around. And we think of the local church. And even then we think, well, is it really that special that we have to believe in a local church? After all, when you think about it, you don't have to go to a church building to be able to worship God, right? In fact, it might be even more effective to put a headphones on and on your iPhone or your Android to listen to beautiful worship music, right, with, with multi-piece bands, and to hear the best preachers in the world in the comfort of your bedroom. Why would you go listen to P. Ben and Pastor Steve where you can listen to the best preachers in the world from the comfort of your bedroom? There's no need for a building. And what about denominations? Well, aren't they kind of corrupt? And aren't they always mired in controversy and immorality? I don't trust organizations and denominations. They just fight. And they just seem to be doing the wrong thing. And what about the local church? Well, as much as I love us as an SLE church, we are, we're a humble group of people where there are divisions and there are fights. and there are, it, it might not always seem very attractive to be part of the local church, does it? There are people you don't like, there are people who don't like you. Uh, there are things that you're just not comfortable with. Now, it depends on what we think the church is. We can have other very low view of church 
or a very high view of church. Now, I want to, in God's word today, what I want to show you is that if you are investigating Christianity, you come to a sermon that's about the church, and you're probably thinking, this is probably not going to be very relevant for me, right? It sounds like a Christian thing. But I want to say to you that if you are investigating Christianity today, understand the church is really important for you. Because understood properly, the church is not about a building, it's not about an organization, it's not just about this local church. The church is about the glorious gathering around God. It's about God's eternal family, a family that he wants you to be a part of. And if you're a Christian here this morning, if you're a believer, then the same thing is very important for you. Because the church, rightly understood, will transform the way that you live in this world and will transform or should transform the way we relate to each other. So whether you're seeking or whether you're already a Christian, it's so important to understand what the church is. Now, the line the Apostles created today is, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Now, I'm going to go through uh, word by word in that Holy Catholic Church, but I'm going to start with the word church, right? It makes the most sense. Now, the word church in the Greek in the Bible is ecclesia, right? The font didn't come up properly, but if you can imagine Greek letters, okay? It says ecclesia, and the word ecclesia is a very normal word that just means gathering. So in the Bible, in Acts 19, where there's a riot, right, in the city, right, they're called a ecclesia, there's a gathering of rioters. But in the rest of the Bible, when the Bible talks about ecclesia, it talks about God's gathered people, right? It's the most common usage of the word in the Bible. It's a gathering that's gathered around God. Now, when we think about salvation today, many of us think of salvation in very personal terms, right? Uh, The salvation plan of God is about how he saves me, right, to belong to him. And so people will say things like, religion is between me and God only, right? Religion is between me and God. Or we might ask people, right, do you have a personal relationship right, with, with, with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Have you accepted Jesus as your personal uh, Lord and Savior, right? It's very easy to think of salvation in very personal terms. But that's not quite how the Bible sees it. When the Bible talks about the salvation plan of God, we are saved to belong to God, but we are saved also to belong to a community. It's not two separate things, it's the same thing. To belong to God is to belong to His community. You see, we are adopted, when we are adopted back as God's children, we are adopted to His family. When we are saved to belong to the Lord Jesus, we are saved to be part of His kingdom, right? To be saved to God is to be saved to community. It's always been the case, right, from the beginning of creation. Right, when God created the world, he created Adam and Eve, right? His first children, you could say, to be part of his family. And not only are they his family, they're also citizens of his kingdom. In fact, they are rulers of God's, of God's kingdom. Remember, if we go back to Genesis 1, they're given the role of multiplying and filling the earth in order to subdue it, to rule over it, to look after it under God. But as many of you might know from the beginning of the Bible, right from the beginning, Adam and Eve, they turned their backs on God. And then we read that their children and their children and their children's children also turn their backs on God. And the Bible introduces to us the concept of sin and rebellion and dishonor and disobedience towards God, our maker. Now, from the beginning of the Bible, right from the moment of the fall, right, which is the, the Bible word of the, 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 the Christian way of saying the sin of man, God's plan, God's salvation plan was to restore his community was to bring a family back to himself, people who had walked away from him, God's plan has been to restore his community. Now, we're going to jump forward all the way to the end of the Bible. I mean, we could spend a lot of hours going through the entire Bible story, but we, we jump forward to the end, to this Revelation 7 scene, which is a picture of, of the end, right? Now, Revelation is exactly that. 
It's a revealing. It's a showing, but it's a kind of a showing in a spiritual vision of an eternal uh, and real truth. And in Revelation 7, we get the picture of eternity and what that will be like. Let me read it to you again, right? Revelation 7, starting from verse 9. I'm going to read to verse 12. Now after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now this vision in Revelation reveals to us the end of God's salvation plan. And what is the end? What is the goal? It is church, right? It's this gathering of a countless multitude from every nation and every people and every tribe and every language gathered, churched around God, giving glory and praise and thanks to the Father and to the Lamb, right? This, this multitude is made out of people who, who don't deserve to be there. For we are told in scriptures that every single human being in the likeness of Adam and Eve, the first human beings, have turned their backs on God, have sinned and have, have, have rebelled and dishonored God in our own different ways. Whether it is with a most moral, religious person who, who finds ways to dishonor and disrespect God, or whether it's the most sinful and, and, and disgusting person who turns their back on God, the Bible's testimony is that every human person has treated God not as he deserved. And so what we see is this gathering of people who don't deserve to be there. But the reason they're there is because of God's salvation plan. It's only because of God's amazing grace and love and mercy. Because God has been at work since the beginning of humanity, throughout human history, to save us and gather us back to himself. That is why the Bible speaks of the church in such glorious terms which is why the church makes it onto the starting team of the theology team, is because it's the glorious church that shows off the glory of God. The fact that all these sinners throughout history and from every place of the globe can be gathered around God is only because of His glorious love and mercy and grace. When we think of church, this ought to be the dominant picture that fills our mind. Not a building, not an organization, not even a local church, but this gathering the eternal people of God by the grace and mercy of God. Now, places like SLE Church and all the local churches that you've come from or that you're going to, were meant to be a physical expression, right? A local physical expression of this universal eternal church. But as you and I know, we are very flawed expressions, aren't we? You see, we are only just flawed expressions, but the real thing is glorious, isn't it? And hopefully we can be as glorious as that. Now, if you are a seeker here today, then I hope this kind of gives you a bit of comfort, right? I hope this is helpful to you to understand what the church really is. Because sometimes it's easy when you think of Christianity to think of the flawed people, the flawed Christians, the hypocritical churches that you've been to or you've heard about. Hopefully what you see in the proper picture of church is not the flawed examples of earth, but the heavenly reality of God's love and grace 
See, to believe in the church is not to believe in flawed people and flawed churches. To believe in the church is to believe in God's plan to save you. It is to believe that God has a family and that he wants you in that family. That's what it means for you to believe in church. Now we move on then to the next phrase, right? The holy church. Now we believe in the holy church. Now, there's two senses of holy that I want you to understand, okay, the Bible teaches. The first is to do with the fact that we've been cleansed, right? Holy in the sense of being cleansed by the, by the blood of Jesus. And the second sense is the word holy in the sense of being set apart. That's what holy means, set apart. Set apart to live as God's people. Okay, we're going to see these two aspects of holiness. Now first, the church is holy because... She has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And without this cleansing, we cannot belong to God. Now, this is what we see in Revelation 7, don't we? In Revelation 7, this multitude, this church gathered to God, is clothed in white, perfectly clean robes. They are gathered there to cry out in worship uh, and praise and thanksgiving to the salvation that comes from God and from the Lamb. Now, if you are an unbeliever or a seeker here today, or if you've ever been an unbeliever before, you're probably going, what the heck, right, is it about Christians worshipping a lamb? That's kind of weird, right? You're right? In this glorious scene of eternity, right, in the worship of God, there's this lamb, right, on the throne. That's kind of weird. Unless you understand about Christianity, that the lamb is a central image, figure, uh, element of what it means uh, for God to save. Because in the beginning of the Bible, we learn that God declares that the righteous judgment against sin is death. Now, for some of us, we're probably thinking, why so harsh, right? Like, if you only just sin against God, if I say a few bad lies, or even bad lies, good lies, if I hurt somebody, if I cheat a bit here in my test or my tax returns, I mean, what, what's the big deal? Why is it that I have to die <coughs> because of these kind of sins? But we understand that the Bible's definition for sin isn't to do with all these little acts but it's to do with turning our backs on God and rebelling against Him and dishonoring Him, the God who made us and is our life giver. If we, are, if we understand sin to mean that, then you can understand why it is that the judgment against sin is death. For to reject the life giver is to also forfeit the life that He gives us. And so the Bible insists that the righteous judgment against sin against God is the taking of our lives. But God isn't just wanting to be just. He wants to be merciful. <clears throat> and because He is just, and He wants to be merciful, <clears throat> He can't just say, forget about all your sin. Right? I don't worry about it. Lah. Right? So, right? Uh, he can't do that because He's righteous. And so in the Old Testament, He shows His people a blueprint for how He was going to deal with sin. And central to this blueprint is this sacrificial system and central to the sacrificial system is the lamb. Where God says, instead of taking your life, you can take a lamb's life. And its blood will wash away your sins. But obviously there's a problem with that. How can the blood and the life of a lamb pay for the sins of human beings? Which is why it's only a blueprint, right? It's only when Jesus comes, the Son of God, in the fullness of man, fully man, fully God, that he becomes the real deal what the blueprint points to. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Lamb in inverted commas, right? Because he is the perfect human being as well as one who's fully God. And which is why the Lamb sits at pride of place in the worship. It is why he sits in the center of the church because it is by his blood that we are cleansed and forgiven 
and gathered back as God's children into God's family. To believe in the church is to believe that God, to believe in the holy church is to believe that God has cleansed us by the blood of Jesus, which is why we can come back to God. Now we move on to the next uh, part of the holiness, which is to, the fact that we're set apart right, for God. So the church is not just cleansed by Jesus and we stand righteous and holy before God. We're also called to live differently. Now we see this in verse 13, right? Revelation 7, verse 13. Uh, one of the elders uh, addressed me, which is John, who wrote this, writes this vision down, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come from? Right? Who are these people who are wearing these white robes? And uh, I said to him, uh, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the elders who said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, it's really great when the Bible asks questions because it's the first questions we have, right? Who are these fellows in the white robe? And then the elder answers, right? And it gives us two parts to the answer. The first part of the answer is, they are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. And the second part of the answer is, they have washed themselves in the blood of the Lamb. Now, tribulation. That's not really a word that we normally use. But if you've been around Christian circles, you know that it's kind of like the buzzword of the people who are thinking about the future, right? the end times. And in certain parts of the world, like the US, the Britons, and the Australia, and even the Singapores, they think of tribulation as being this end time period of hyper persecution and suffering and difficulty, right? where, where Satan is let loose from wherever he is now to wreak havoc on the earth. Now, it's only people who live in very first world, prosperous, comfortable, fat lives who think of tribulation like that. Because if you were to go to a Pakistani or someone from East Africa or someone from Burma and ask them about tribulation and tell them it's a future end time thing, they will laugh at you if they could stop crying from all the suffering and tribulation that they're suffering now. And they understand and they're more in tune with what the Bible says about tribulation. For Jesus makes it clear, right? He told his disciples this before he went back into heaven. He said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Why? Where will they have peace? Why would they need peace? Because in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. It's not the only time he says this. He promises that the life of the committed believer in Jesus is one of suffering. And we live in a time of wars and, and evil and wickedness in general. But we also live in a time of persecution where people are against God, against His Son, the Christ, and against Christians. You know, we are told as believers that when we set apart our lives to live for God, we will be very different from the world. Our beliefs are fundamentally different. Our ideals and our pursuits. Our behaviors and our speech. Very different. And you know what it's like in this world to be different, right? To be different is to be ostracized. And especially when it's different, when it comes to our worship of God and our following of Jesus, especially so, we will be shouted down, we will be opposed, and we will suffer. But the picture here is that those who are dressed in white are those who have overcome and have come out of this tribulation. We are those who stand firm. We are those who keep believing. And we do so by, by washing ourselves in the blood of Jesus which is kind of a metaphor for saying to be empowered by the death and resurrection of Jesus is for those of us who continue to want to live and seek out to live holy lives every day. For those of us who resist the lure and the temptation of this world, it is for those who, even when we fail, 
We trust in the blood of Jesus to wash us clean. Now, so what does it mean to believe in the holy church? It is, to be, it is to believe that we stand holy before God because of the blood of Jesus. And it is to believe that we are set apart to live holy lives enabled by Jesus. That's what it means to, to believe in the holy church. So if you're a Christian here today and you are someone who is happy to read out the line of the creed that says, I believe in the holy church, well, is that actually the life that you live as individual members of God's church and as a church, a local church, SLE church, are we truly holy and set apart? Or do we know first and foremost that we are cleansed and accepted by God because of Jesus alone? And then are we pursuing that kind of holiness, that kind of difference that shows that we are set apart to belong to God? I'm sure you've heard this before, right? This, this imagining, right? If, you, if we were all to print out our bank statements and our credit card bills and paste it on the wall, all the believers here, and then we go to our neighbors and they are willing to have their credit cards printed out, right? Unbelieving neighbors. And then we paste it on the wall and we compare and contrast how we spend our money. Would it look the same or would it look different? If we were to broadcast everything that we say in the past week as Christians and we broadcast what other people say and compare it, would we sound different in our speech? If we were to pro, uh, project, right, our images of our brains our thoughts, our, our thinking about people and about life and about stressful situations and about work, for all to see, would it look different as Christians? Would it look holy compared to the people around us who do not worship God and are not followers of Jesus? Now, I, I hate saying stuff like that because then I have to actually think about whether I've done it myself, right? And, and I would not want to broadcast my speech nor would I want to project my thoughts. Because I know that there are parts of my life which are far from being the set-apart life that I would want it to be and that God wants it to be. Many of you know that I love my stuff, right? I'm a technology person. Uh, it's not just having the technology, but it's the pleasure of it. And that affects the way I spend because technology costs money. And I keep having to question myself, right? These are good gifts from God, but am I too unholy in the way I use it? Am I too like everybody else in pursuing it and in spending on it and, in, and being consumed by it? And I need to change, right? Live a set-apart life. And we all need to examine ourselves. There are certainly blind spots in many of our lives. We need to examine our church. Is SLE church really different in, in, in God's good ways compared to the world around us? The Holy Church. Now, the final statement here, the final word that we're looking at is the Catholic Church, right? The, the Holy Catholic Church. Now, when we think Catholic, I am certain that all of us are thinking of the Roman Catholic Church, right? I mean, that's the most obvious place to go when you're thinking Catholic. But that's not what the word means, right? Catholic, just like the word ecclesia, is a Greek word, right? Catholicos, for those of you who know your Greek, uh, is a geeky moment for me. But katha is the, uh, is the prefix for according to, and holos, right, which is the end of the bit there, which is whole, right? According to the whole is what the Greek word means, which just means universal. Okay, so Catholic just means universal. Now, when we think universal, we can't help but think Revelation 7, 
right? For what's the picture of Revelation 7? Is it not a picture of universalism, right? Not universalism in that everybody is saved, but the picture of all people and all nations and all languages and all tribes being gathered, the universal church around God. In the context of Revelation, in the context of the Bible, this all people, all nation, all language isn't just one point in time, but the entirety of human history. All of God's people, in all of time, in all of the globe, gathered around God as the one Catholic church. There is only one church, one whole church, one true church. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Can you see the repetition here? There's only one. There is only one hope that we have in Christ. There is only one Lord Jesus that saves and that rules over us. And there's only one faith, one body of truth right, that we believe in that makes us the church. And so it is that we see that the first aspect of unity is unity in truth. Right? That's point 4B there, right? unity in truth. The first thing that we need to say about unity is that there is unity in truth. The one true church is made up of those who call upon the one Lord, have the same hope and the same understanding of the faith as others in this church. When we say that we're united as Christians, we're not saying that everything goes. There is no boundaries and there is no, no qualifications or criteria. Right? That we, we don't have to care what people believe or do. It's not saying that. Because we see in scriptures that it's clear that we're united around the truth. That there are people who claim to be Christians who aren't Christians. There are so-called Christian churches that do not hold on to the one hope and the one Lord and the one faith. Now, there's another creed called the Nicene Creed. Right? It's written a couple hundred years after the Apostles' Creed, and it adds to the church line the word apostolic. Right? We believe in the one holy Catholic apostolic church, which is a good thing to add because it says that the church is built on the foundations of the apostles' teachings. Now, we saw how important this is last week when we looked at the Holy Spirit, right? This is the verse that we read last week about the Holy Spirit and about the apostles. <clears throat> but when the Helper, which is the Spirit, comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning by talking to the 11 apostles who have stayed faithful to Jesus. And in the next chapter, Jesus continues. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You see, the Christian faith, the true, the one church, is built on the teachings of the apostle, apostles, who are given the Spirit to remember everything that Jesus did and said when they were following Jesus around. And then they will go on to teach it and write it down in the Bible, which we have. Which is why we can say that the church can be Catholic. It can be universal. It is only possible because it is built on the one truth, on the one gospel. Right? If there are many different messages, it can't be the one church. It is the word, the truth that unites us all, such that the first century Philippian farmer believes in the same gospel as the 16th century German scholar, as do the 21st century you and me's 
in this world, we all are part of the one church by the same one gospel that is found in the word of God, the one word of God. Now, one theologian, Karl Barth, really famous guy, he rightly says this, the real church is the assembly which is called, united, held together and governed by the word of her Lord, or she is not the real church. Now, as people who are united in the one Lord, in the one hope, in the one faith, there then must be unity in our relationships. For our unity is not just through our brains and our intellect and what we believe, but it's through our entire lives, right, with the others who are part of this gathering, part of this church. There has to be a unity in relationships. Now, our Lord Jesus himself said to his disciples something amazing. He said, I'm going to pray to my Father that you, all the believers in the world, will be one as the Father and the Son is one. Imagine that. Right? We've done the Trinity a few times in the past two months in the Apostles' Creed. The Father and the Son, two beings, two persons of the one true God. Their unity is eternal and mind-blowing. And Jesus says, I pray that the disciples will be one just as the Father and Son are one. That is the kind of unity that Jesus wants us to have. Which is why it is so sad, isn't it, that Christians are not generally known for our unity. Whether we're talking worldwide Christianity, we're talking historical Christianity, or whether we're talking about SLE Church Christianity, so often we are not known for our unity. Instead, we are known for our fights, our divisions over teachings, over practices, over personality differences, over don't know what little nonsense things that causes us to fight and divide. It is such a sad reality that Christians are not united. Now, sometimes, you know, we have question and answer times at camps or wherever, and I get asked the question, what is the deal with all these Christian denominations? Right, why is it so divided? How many Christianities do you want to have? Right? Now, I know the right theologically correct answer to give, but my first reaction always is to feel sad right, and embarrassed that I have to even answer a question like that because denominationalism is one of the examples of how divided Christians can be. Right? And over history, some denominations have especially come out and said that we are the one true church. We are the truest form and the only form of the church. Now, it's kind of the reason why, I guess, the, the Roman church decided to call themselves the Roman Catholic Church. Right? They were making a stand that they were the only true church. Now, whether you, can, you can assess that for yourself, whether it's true or not, but that's why it's in the name, right? Roman Catholic Church. Denominationalism is one sign, one one clear evidence of how divided Christians can be. Now, denominationalism isn't all bad, right? And so when I answer that question, what's the deal with that? It's not all bad. Because while Christians all have the same core truths from the scriptures, the gospel, Jesus, the Father, Holy Spirit, and stuff like that, there's actually a lot of freedom in scriptures. The Bible doesn't prescribe every single thing that you ought to do as a Christian or a church has to do. And there is a freedom of expression, and there is this great way to express our our, our uh, differences uh, in, a, in a way that can build up God's church and build up each other. And it's also true that there is often, or maybe sometimes, a necessary division against those who are not teaching the truth. Right? We see that in scriptures all the time, warning after warning of false teachers who claim to be Christians, 
who claim to be church leaders, who are actually leading people away from the gathering, away from God, rather than towards God. And so there's a necessary division that glorifies God in those cases. I suppose it's a real pity that our world that looks in from the outside can't tell the difference, right? Whether our divisions are necessary and God-honoring or whether our divisions and fights are unnecessary and sinful, the world doesn't see that, right? So it's a real pity. All that being said, we who believe in the one universal church gathered around God through Jesus Christ, bound by the Spirit, ought to live united lives, right? Now, many of us, maybe most of us, if not all of us, haven't really got much ability, opportunity to change the worldwide situation of Christian unity. If you do have a chance to become like the archbishop of the universe, if there's such a role, right, go and try and fix the problems. But for most of us, what we can do, and the minimum that we ought to do, is to work on the unity within our local church, right? You might not be able to change eternity, you might not be able to change global issues, but you can contribute to the unity of our church. Whether that's here in SLE or wherever it is you go or you come from, that's what you can do. Now, how do we do that? How do we promote unity within the church? Well, how long is a piece of string, right? There's so many ways. But let me talk about three ways, two of which I think SLE Church is doing pretty well and one in which we need to work a lot harder on. Now, the first is there, right? We express unity by meeting together. The whole point of local churches is that they are physical expressions of our spiritual and heavenly reality. Gather on Jesus. There's this eternal heavenly gathering, and we've got to express it in our physical local gathering. It's like family gatherings. But a good, well-functioning, loving family will meet together for meals, for outings, and just because. Your family, right? You don't need a reason to meet. You see, family bonds draw families together. How much more so our spiritual family bond? A more profound bond than anything else. It's a bond that God has created through His Son and His death on the cross, And it's a bond that the Holy Spirit himself holds us together by. How much more so should we gather together as family? Which is why it's such a weird question for Christians to ask, why should I bother going to church? I can be a Christian on my own. Uh, No, you can't. The definition of being a Christian is to be gathered, right? You gather because you are the church. No Christian is not part of the church, right? Two negatives, sorry. Every Christian is part of the church, right? So why do we not gather? But like I said, I think the church is doing pretty well. We love to gather, don't we? Uh, most people come to church most weeks. And most people who come to church most weeks also go to a fellowship group. I have lots of pastor friends and we compare notes sometimes. Yeah, we do talk about you guys. Nothing personal, like in general terms. And I will share with them about how many people who attend Sunday services also go to a fellowship group. And they're amazed. Right? We have something like 80% plus who both go to Sunday service and a fellowship group, which is unheard of in most of my friends' churches. We're doing really well in gathering together. But let's not rest on our laurels. Let's keep doing that. Right? Let's keep seeing the importance of meeting together. Now, the second point is we express unity by helping each other to stay on track. And this is where the famous Hebrews 10 passage combines point one and two, meeting together to stay on track, right? Hebrews 10 says, 
Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, it's not just about meeting together that's important, right? Lots of people meet together for all sorts of reasons. But for Christians, we meet together. And what we do when we meet together is just as important. And why do we meet together? It's to help each other to press on to the end. To help each other to hold firm to the truths of the one hope in the one Lord in this one faith that we share. And it is to help each other to live out lives of love and good deeds that we are saved for, holy lives, right? In other words, we meet together to help each other to live holy lives as a church and to come out of the tribulation together at the end. That's why we meet together. That's what we're trying to do. Now, in SLA Church, I think we're going pretty well on this as well. We are a group of people who really love the truth, don't we? Uh, we, we, we value uh, a good teaching of the Bible, good books. We like to learn it. We like to teach others. But more than that, I think we're also not just wanting to leave it in our heads. Many of us have a desire to want to live that out. We don't want it to just be head knowledge. We don't want to just be Sunday Christians. We, many of us have a genuine desire to really live that life out of holiness and love. Now, I don't think this is as strong as our desire to meet. We love meeting, and I, we kind of love growing. Let's keep going with that, okay? Let's keep pressing on in meeting together to help each other to make it to the end. Now, the final one, the third point, we express our unity by putting aside all the differences that do not matter. Uh, we express our unity by putting aside all the differences that do not matter. We express unity by truly being a welcoming, united church. The picture of Revelation 7 is a picture of that kind of unity, isn't it? Every nation, every people group, and every language type. That's the picture of Revelation 7. Now, I want you to look around this room. Look around. I just can. It's not very big, so it'll take you like one second. Does it look like SLE Church is made up of every people group, every tribe, every language? No, it doesn't, does it? It doesn't really look like Revelation 7 Church. In the first service, amazingly today, there were about... Four, five, maybe six other nationalities represented. It quadrupled or tripled our national variety because our visitors came along to the first service. It's awesome to be able to see some kind of different faces. I love you guys, <laughs> but it was nice to be able to see a bit more Revelation 7 uh, in our congregation. I want you to listen to this passage, this not passage, this paragraph from our church's website. If you've ever been to, hey, who's been to our church website? Put your hand up. Okay, that's pretty good, half. It's just been redesigned, and there's a page on there called About Us, right, to say about our church, and these are two paragraphs that comes from it. This is what we want to be, right, About Us. SLE is predominantly made up of two groups of people. The first group consists of migrant families from Southeast Asia, that's kind of like the first service, and the second group consists of interstate and international students studying in one of the Brisbane universities. That's kind of more 11 o'clock, right? Now, although these two groups make up the bulk of the congregation, all people from Australia and from all nations are welcome to visit and be a part of our church gathering and family. Indeed, being a family in Christ is what we are really on about. Right? Now, I've underlined this for your benefit. It's not actually underlined on the website. I might go and underline it, actually. 
Now, for many decades, right, this church started in 1974. This church has done a great ministry to the migrant community from Singapore and Malaysia, and then to the international student community from China, Hong Kong, Singapore, Malaysia, and other Southeast Asian countries. It's done a brilliant ministry. We've grown so much over the years, and we've seen so many graduates and migrants who've gone to other places serve God faithfully. This is who we are. More importantly, this is who God has made us to be, and he's blessed us in that way. Now, that's true. But it's also true that we are supposed to be a church that is welcoming to all people. While we may be predominantly something, and we might have a, a very uh, a, a, a special, uh, we have a um, privilege of being able to reach out to a certain community, we ought to remember that the church is Revelation 7. The picture of all nations, all peoples, all languages. And the question has to be asked as to whether we have truly been welcoming to all people from Australia and from all nations into our church. Because I know for a fact, and how often this happens, I don't know, but I know for a fact that it does happen, that people who are not like us, the majority of us, have been made to feel unwelcome, whether purposefully or unpurposefully, whatever the opposite word of unpurposefully is, right? (laughs) Inadvertently, right? We've done so. We have made people who are not predominantly Southeast Asians or Chinese people feel out of place in our midst. You know, as a church who are predominantly Asian, I think we have to make an especial effort to welcome and make people who are not part of our major demographic feel more welcome. Not because they are more special than anybody else who is Chinese, but because of our context, our demographic, our feels they will already feel out of place. And so we have to put in extra effort, I feel, to show that we really see them not as a race, first and foremost, but as believers or as seekers, as those loved by God, as those who are part of His eternal church, to go beyond being skin deep. And that's really difficult for us because we are so tuned to being who we are on the surface, aren't we? That we wear our culture and our race so comfortably, such that when we chat over morning tea, we talk about Singaporean and Malaysian food and, and our boys to men and army stuff, and even the women in Singapore get left out by that conversation, by the way. <laughs> and the Malaysians talk about their durian and, and their najib, and, and then you know, the Chinese people talk about, you know. And we become welcoming to people who don't get it. Right? We're going to make that special effort. You know, I, I, I hope to say that our church isn't just somewhere where you feel comfortable inviting Southeast Asian people. I know sometimes I feel uncomfortable inviting the, my, the, the friends I've made at school, right? my kids, uh, their friends' parents. Uh, and sometimes I know we try our best to reach out to them, but they don't stay because it's like too daunting. But I hope we keep trying. Because we don't just want to be welcoming to people who come into our doors. We want to go out into the world and bring people into the church from every people group every nation, and every language. Now, I've only had time to really deal with one aspect of a human discrimination that divides us as church. We shouldn't. There are others, aren't there? Age differences, different socioeconomic status, personality types and interests. All these human factors that shouldn't divide us because we are the church. We are God's church made up of people from every place. Now, let's just wrap things up. Now, hopefully it's clear for you to see that when you think church, 
when we say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, we are not talking about a building. We are not talking about an organization or denomination, and we're not even really talking about our local church. What we are talking about is the glorious church gathered around God because of Jesus' death on the cross that washes us clean. The church deserves to be in the starting team, right, of the theology team, because it is God's end point for history. It's the starting point for history. It's the end point for history. The people gather to him who will enjoy him forever. That is what the church is. It is a church that is set apart from the rest of the world to belong to God, to live a different life. It's a challenge to us as to whether we truly are the holy people of God. A challenge to us whether we're meeting up together to help each other to make it to the end, whether we're meeting up together to go out into the world to invite more people into the church of God. Let me pray that this is the church that we believe in. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are so amazingly gracious, loving, and merciful. That even as we stand rightfully under your judgment, as those who have sinned against you, who have turned our backs against you, who have ignored you, who have not given you the honor that you deserved, yet in your amazing grace, you have, from the beginning of human history, sought to gather your family back to yourself at the greatest cost that we can imagine, that you yourself, your son, came into this world as a man to live and suffer and die, to take on himself the sins of the world, your entire judgment poured on himself so that we can be cleansed and be gathered back as your church, your family, your children. We pray that when we think of church, we will think of this glorious, eternal gathering, that we will think of your grace and love and mercy. And we'll remember that we are cleansed in order to be your holy people, set apart to live differently from the rest of this world who do not listen to you or worship you or honor you. So we pray, Father, you help us live set apart lives, that you help us to spur each other on to make it to the end, that you'll help us to go out into the world and bring more people into this glorious church. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.